thanks so much for tuning in to episode 11 of the Farm One podcast. This is our first episode of 2021. A great fresh start. Um, I My name is Ina Tubalaiha, and I am the chief of staff at, on the team. And today I am joined by our CEO and founder, Rob Lang. That's me. Hello. Happy New Year. And Michael Chin, our vice president of corporate development. Happy New Year, everyone. Thanks, Michael. How are you guys doing? Did you have a good little restful break? I feel like we had two long weekends in a row and I couldn't really handle it because normally, I don't know about you, but my response to seeing a long weekend coming up is like, oh, I'm going to cook loads of stuff and I'm going to basically not really do my regular routine and I'm going to watch movies and read books. And it sounds really exciting. And then on day three, I'm like, oh, I feel really sluggish and tired <laughs> and I wish I was going to the gym right now. And, you know, so it's kind of a lot. And then also just the fact of just being stuck at home and, you know, not necessarily being able to, you know, do very active things. I just feel like my whole body kind of slowed down and I'm really excited to be, you know, actually back at work and doing stuff. And I'm excited to get up in the morning and have my like mushroom tea and my uh, smoothies and just get back to my regular rhythm, really. What, what do you think? I am a lot like you. I thrive on structure in my day. Yeah. And um, for me, New Year's is probably one of my most difficult holidays because I'm the type of person that falls asleep by 8, 9 p.m. every night. And so yeah. for a holiday to require me to stay up till midnight feels really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Gabby and I, I know, were like drinking tea in the afternoon, like like green tea so that we would, you know, have the energy. And then we were just joking about it because we had to put so much planning into this ability to stay awake. <laughs> it just felt like we were going on this like Antarctic expedition or something when all it was was just trying to stay up to midnight. Like that's it, you know? Yeah, exactly. I, I ended up falling asleep at 1030. That's the most I could give myself. And I'm okay with that. I had, I had a very restful New Year's, listened yeah. to lots of jazz music. And you know, now I feel really energized and refreshed for the new year. I'm really excited, you know, just like you, Rob, to get back into my routine and, you know, use all of this rest and this newfound energy. Yeah. Well, I also have a bit of an announcement to make. Uh, and so I think you two know this already, but um, on New Year's Eve, I proposed to Gabby. So we're engaged. Woo. Yeah. So that was Yay. a whole thing. And uh, we had some some of her friends on Zoom. We like uh, Skyped in my parents afterwards and uh, ended up staying up until like 3.30 or something. So way outside the bounds of you know normal <laughs> sleep time. Um, but yeah, it was great. And and she said yes, obviously. So, uh, so Congratulations. That's yeah, super exciting. And, and we're just, you know, really looking forward to the year ahead and really looking forward to be able to, you know, travel and see people who, um, you know, we can kind of share this with and, and everything. So, so yeah, it was great. It was great. So everything I said about feeling sluggish and all that kind of stuff was just unrelated, <laughs> but like, you know, a uh, great, a great holiday overall. What about you, Michael? Congratulations. What a what a Thanks, great man. way to end the year and what a great way to start the year too. Yeah. So that, that's so much fun. And yeah, yeah I was uh, 
I, I was imagining you spending the rest of the long weekend or what was left of the holiday just calling all of your friends and family <laughs> telling yeah. everyone here's what happened and yeah. retelling the story like a hundred times yeah that's literally what happened so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh that's awesome yeah. that's uh like i said what a great way to start the year but yeah, what about we, you michael did you do did you get back into heavy hardcore training and uh you know get on top of yourself like uh help no. No, okay. no. I stood in front of the mirror and frowned and said, what happened? Um, <laughs> That's like literally the opposite of all motivational advice, I would say, you know, but hey. <laughs> so how did this happen? <laughs> no, that's, that's maybe been the toughest thing. Well, two of the toughest things, uh, not being able to uh, do any jujitsu and also not being able to travel. That's, uh, that's maybe yeah. the two toughest things. Uh, of all of the tough things, which sounds like uh, uh, kind of miserable given given the state of the world. So I'm, I'm going to shut up with all of that right now. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was, it was a great end to the year. We uh, had a very chill time, uh, managed to stay up to midnight. And uh, I think I was asleep by around 12.02. Yeah, um, that's good. Which, which was perfect. It was uh, maybe a little bit of a struggle to stay up, but it was good. It was good. <laughs> Nice. Well, I was I was thinking about sort of resolution. I don't know about in your family, but my family historically has been a big like, oh, you got to have resolutions. You got to have New Year's resolutions, you know. And so I sort of have always sort of done that. But, you know, I think everyone has these like mixed success with resolutions, right? Like I think there's some statistic like I'm, I'm going to make this up at like 60% of resolutions are forgotten by February or something like that. You know, there's a lot of gym memberships that historically start now and end about 10 weeks from now because people don't go. Um, and personally, I guess, you know, I've sort of had similar experiences, but one of the things that caught my eye last week was a, a piece in the New York times, which was about thinking about it a different way and looking at the things that you have um, achieved or become things that have become a habit in 2020 that you want to continue and kind of build on in 2021. And I thought that was actually really nice because it made you like look back and I did this, like I sort of actually started with a Google doc and it turned into like a three page, you know, hundred bullet point kind of thing. Um, like one of Ina's planning documents, you know, but, uh, <laughs> so, so, but I was like looking back and, you know, like for instance, one of the good things, um, that happened in the past year was actually, I reconnected with some friends who I hadn't really spoken to that much previously. And because we kind of reconnected over zoom and we ended up doing like regular zoom drinks and stuff like that. And now we're talking about planning trips together. And, you know, these are folks who I knew from high school, but hadn't really, you know, just stayed in like really active contact. And so like, that was something. And then, you know, actually not being able to go to the gym meant that we, you know, Gabby and I bought a few more bits of home fitness equipment. Um, you know, she got some of these like yoga blocks and like the, the special yoga mat. And then I got some of these like weight activity things and stuff. And so that's been like really good, I think. And, and definitely something that we want to build on. As well, I know Ina had a bit of an accident earlier this year with some gym equipment. I don't know if you want to share that, but uh, but I thought that was quite a nice way of thinking about it. it. Was like, what are some things that you like managed to build into your habits and daily life last year, and what is you know some ways that you can kind of keep building on that rather than giving yourself like this super aggressive goal that maybe you're going to forget about uh, in a few months' time. I don't know if you if you both have 
examples of that, but that was how I sort of started to think about it. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, for me, 2020 was a big year professionally because that was the year that I jumped into the food and agriculture space. Before that, in 2019, I was working in healthcare. And for me, it was a really big shift. And that's something that I really want to continue down and build momentum and build energy on. So I, I definitely agree with that sentiment and of how to look at New Year's resolutions. So I definitely see myself growing my career in the food and agriculture space this year. I also, yes, I did in 2020 was the year that I broke my nose working out with resistance bands. Um, <laughs> yes, it was a pretty bad accident. And I'm, you know, I, I don't know if I ever wanted to tell this story publicly, but I guess here we go. Um, it, I was using the resistance band over a hook and I was trying to do, you know, like some upper body workouts with it. And then the hook broke and then it snapped at my face. And then here, here we, here we are. But I think that being able to say that I did do a lot of workouts, even with an injury, I, you know, I definitely feel a lot stronger at the end of the year than I did at the start of the year. So that's something I also want to continue as well. Um, yeah. One thing that I am really thinking about a lot, I know that a lot of other people in my network and a lot of my friends have similar goals is I just really want to focus on my plastic usage. I think that the, what COVID had done for me is it real and like, you know, just being quarantining, it just, it just shed a light to how much I was consuming and I could really sit down and reflect on how much of that I didn't need and changing how much plastic I'm using and then also changing where I'm purchasing things. So one thing that I did in 2019 was I only purchased clothes from like thrift stores and secondhand um, shops online. So that's something that I want to continue with in other things. So in 2021, I'm going to be moving to a new place and I want to consider how I can purchase furniture from second secondhand places as well. Wow, Michael, what great. about you? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, Rob. I don't uh, really, I guess for me, the the resolutions turned into more kind of thematic goals of focus, I suppose. What I found uh, starting about probably five or six years ago was just listing out the, the you know, a specific resolution. Um, I don't know, it just didn't quite work for me. What I started to do was just think thematically what I wanted to do in my life or with my life. Um, and this idea of living, I suppose, with more intention um, and you know, just using them as, as guide rails uh, for things that I wanted to do, things that I wanted to achieve, and really just where I wanted to focus my energy. Um, that said, I'll admit that I'm behind this year. So over the next couple of weeks, I think I'm going to do some of that thinking and, and, and kind of writing. Um, but the one thing uh, that last year really made me think about, well, there were a few things. Um, one, really just where I'm spending my energy, uh, where I'm putting my energy on the mm. things that mattered the most. And a big part of that I realized was just the people that mattered the most to me. Um, so like you, it's, it's been really fun to reconnect with, uh, people that I've lost touch with, um, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So I have a couple of friends that I grew up with that are probably the people that are closest to me. Um, one of them's in Singapore. Uh, he listens to this. So hi, Mike. 
um, and, and our other friend, uh, Dr. Andy, uh, who's over in Edinburgh. So, you know, he's, he's pretty much my oldest friend. We met, I think, when we were like four years old or something like that. Um, and it's been nice. We've reconnected the three of us, you know, we've, we've, uh, had a video chat and all of that. So, yeah. And I, I'd like to keep doing that this year. I, I think we're going to continue to feel some of the impacts of, um, COVID and, and all that. And that, that was really good for me and that worked. And, you know, likewise with people that are more recent in my life, um, you know, making sure I'm keeping time making yeah. time to to spend time with them in, in in good ways um so hopefully hopefully we'll continue to do a bit more of that and you know professionally this year um i'm really looking forward to some of the things we've got planned at farm one uh, we've got some big milestones to hit um but, and i think we're going to get there it's uh it, it's it's really interesting sort of coming out of you know, everything that happened last year and, and what we've got planned for this year. And of course, not everything will go the way that we want it to. We already got that a, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago. <laughs> uh, we thought we were on a pretty good path and uh, we had a quick change at the last minute. Um, but I think we're going to end up in a, in a better place uh, either way. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I share the sentiment. I think I'm really excited about what's coming up and you know, if you look back over the last year, obviously, you know, we've had to make some really big changes at Farm One and, and uh, you know, throughout the summer, we were tr just trying to experiment and try new things. And, you know, by the end of the summer, by August, September, we found, you know, something that was working and something that our customers really, really loved. And so, you know, over the past few months, we've been trying to build on that. And, you know, initially uh, with the subscriptions offering that we have, like we, it, we weren't really sure if that was going to work. You know, um, I think the three of us, uh, for instance, and, and Justin and Jess, and we were, you know, giving it like a few weeks to see what happens and trying to, you know, get some signups, trying to see, you know, I remember like we were just literally like, let's get people some product. Let's see if they actually like it, you know. Um, so we're really back to that like super basic early startup stage. And now, thankfully, that's gone extremely well. We're oversubscribed now. We have people signing up um, who will not really get deliveries until March now um, because we're so oversubscribed, which is a great place to be. Um, and and now, yeah, just to talk about it a little bit, we're, we're very close to signing a lease on a new space uh, that's likely to be in Brooklyn. We're not 100% sure which exact space it'll be next. But the idea is that it'll give us significantly more production space, um, maybe on the order of like 10 times the space eventually, or maybe even a little bit more than that. Um, and that'll allow us to expand our subscription business um, and you know probably add a few more zip codes as well. We're delivering to Manhattan and Brooklyn right now. We're hoping to add Queens, add stuff up in the Bronx as well, hopefully. Um, and also, you know, there'll be some additional products coming through as well, which we're really excited about. We're going to do a secret little trial next week. Uh, stay tuned for that. There's going to be some hard work early mornings involved with that one, uh, but it'll, it should be really exciting. Um, and yeah, we're really, we're really excited about that. I think us expanding to this Brooklyn location will obviously be a big step for us as a company, but I think that. You know, if you if you think about over the past three years since we've been at Tribeca, 
we've sort of had some, you know, some starts and then some problems and then starts and then problems. And, you know, obviously this year, you know, out of the blue COVID um, was hugely unexpected, but it's really, I think, you know, put us into a much stronger position as a company now, a much more scalable position, which is really exciting. And I'm just like, you know, we were, cause we, you know, we're all on Slack and we get notifications when we get signups you know, uh, automatically, right? So when someone new signs up, everyone sees it. And then we all just like celebrate together and it happens very regularly now, which is awesome. Um, and we hit our target number over the new years, um, literally on the stroke of midnight in Hawaii, we hit our end of year <laughs> goal for signups, which was pretty great. Um, but also we see like just nice comments as well from customers. Um, you know, they, the, one of the nicest things I'm sort of paraphrasing, but it's like, oh, every week when I get this box, it's like the highlight of my week because I can see all this freshness in there. And like, it's, it's, it's really nice to hear. And so, um, so yeah, we're, we're super confident about the product and super excited about, about what's coming next. And, and I guess like to, you know, to follow the theme of things that we achieved last year that we want to continue, I think that. Um, you know, certainly that quick experimentation ability to adapt, I don't want to lose that next year. I think, you know, the focus on um, the quality that we've always had, I don't, I definitely don't want to lose that either. It's something that we want to definitely grow and, and keep scaling as a company. But I think also, you know, we really double down on our kind of community focus and, and diversity, inclusion, anti-racism efforts as well in 2020 and we've got some really exciting stuff coming up with that early this year i was gonna say early next year early this year um and so that's something that i think is gonna you know bring a whole new dimension to what we're doing so um pretty soon we'll be able to talk about it publicly i think and and i'm really excited about that as well what do you think Ina? what do you think 2021 is going to be like for farm one i think i'm looking forward to um, growing the team also. I think that we went through that really hard moment last year in 2020 um, where we had to let go a lot of uh, really valuable team members because we were just in a really big constraint of losing all of our customers and all of our revenue. We didn't have any restaurant sales. We couldn't have any tours anymore on the farm. So I'm looking forward to a farm one again where we can grow the team and have that you know it was just it was just a lot of great energy among our among our team you know when we were all together so i'm hoping that we can get to that space again yeah. um and i'm yeah. also really looking forward to having some members events in 2021 i'm thinking that there's going to be hopefully something that we can have safely in this year where we can yeah. all learn from each other and really feel the power of the community that we're creating around these um around the farm and around these you know fresh deliveries and learning from each other and i i'm really excited i love any opportunity to talk to our customers and to hear what they think and and to Imagining a space where we're all together really excites me. So that's something that yeah. I'm looking forward to this year. Yeah, that's totally right. I actually had someone reach out to me this morning who wanted to do like a special cocktail or something for uh, his wife for her birthday and like, and we couldn't do it, you know, obviously. And so it's 
we used to do that kind of stuff all the time. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's going to be super nice to be able to return to that and to show people a new space as well, maybe do some bigger events. I feel like whatever month it is that we feel like we're getting back to normal, hopefully this year, um, you know, people are going to go crazy for in-person stuff. I feel like, I mean, I feel like I am. I'm not even someone who really likes going to parties that much, but the idea of like going to a party or something where there's like strangers who you can meet, it's like, it sounds incredible. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah. The other part of, I, I guess, the community that, that I'm really excited to see how far we can push it is, you know, with other small uh, businesses in New York City, food businesses, you know, part of what we're doing right now is, you know, adding a, a small surprise with each week's deliveries. Um, but I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how, um, where we take that part of the business. Can we build a community of uh, other local food businesses that share similar values to us? Um, share a similar similar proposition of um, you know fresh local sustainable yeah. um, and and really how we can help uh, lift everyone else up as well um, as as we grow farm one in New York. Yeah, that's gonna be great. I'm really I haven't had that much time to focus on that aspect over the past few months, but like yeah, I'm really excited about that. It's gonna be great. So. What's next, Ina? What are we talking about this week? Apart from ourselves and, you know, our overeating and, and farm work. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing what you're excited for in 2021. Um, this is really related to a lot of the news that we've been seeing as well. Um, Michael identified an article um, that shares a lot about the optimism that the CEA community is feeling towards 2021. Michael, do you want to share a little bit about why you thought this article was interesting and, um, you know, some of the highlights that you noticed? Yeah, yeah. So Jess, um, who's been on this podcast a number of times, our director of technology, popped this into our uh, Slack channel um, this morning. And I thought it was oh, actually over the weekend, I thought it was really interesting. You know, it was a good way to sort of wrap up last year and, and kick into this year. So the article um, uh, came from thepacker.com, and it's about a uh, survey that was done um, by our friends over at Agritecture, uh, and it was sponsored by a company named Autogrow. And I'm pretty sure from what I could tell on their website, they do automation uh, products and solutions, so software and, and hardware. Yeah, we have, a, we have a, one of their systems, actually. Oh, OK. OK, yeah, yeah. cool, cool. Um, yeah, so. It was a survey that ran uh, eight weeks uh, from July to September of last year. And um, it uh, was a bunch of questions about controlled environment agriculture. I'm sorry, agriculture. <laughs> um, and they surveyed uh, 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 farmers and, and entrepreneurs and people in the industry from over 58 countries. 20% of them were based in the US, 15 in India, and seven in the UK, percent that is. Uh, overall, uh, 371 respondents. So, you know, it was sort of a general survey of the market, you know, where things are, where the business, uh, where, where business seems to be around the world. So a few, few sort of high level takeaways. Um, it was overwhelmingly positive. 
95% uh, of the respondents had a positive outlook. And this was really interesting. 50%, I'm sorry, 57% of them were break even or better on crop sales versus pre COVID levels. Um, so this has been really interesting, right? I mean, we, we've talked about it a number of times in terms of the supply chain and the effect of uh, COVID on the supply chain. And this was an opportunity that I think we all felt um, as kind of local farmers and that. Uh, but it seems like uh, there's, uh, there's something to it. Um, and some of this was driven by uh, kind of CSA models um, and, and produce boxes. Uh, much like what we did uh, when we lost our restaurant and um, for many of these farms, kind of hotel and hospitality customers as well. Um, uh, and the other thing that was really interesting at a high level uh, was that 88% of new farmers or farmers in C CEA um, were below the age of uh, 50. And 71% of them were uh, under the age of 40. And about half of them, 49%, had no previous experience in agri agriculture, which I thought was also very interesting. Um, before I go on, any, any reactions to any of that from either of you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the age numbers are pretty promising. You know, it's a small cohort, obviously, and I, I think like tendency to respond to these kinds of surveys is high compared to maybe traditional farmers. If they receive this survey, they might not bother responding. So I, I think there may be some skewing going on, but like, I think that overall, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that like the USDA should be excited about because, you know, the, the numbers around uh, age groups and demographics with traditional farmers are really depressing, you know, like average age of a farmer in the US, I can't remember exactly, but it's over 55. Um, and like people are just aging out of the profession and young people are not coming into it. And I think that controlled environment agriculture, particularly like tech driven, you know, vertical farming, high tech greenhouses, this kind of thing is like the kind of thing that younger people get excited about is the kind of thing that younger people maybe think they can actually make some money from as opposed to grinding away on a, you know, monoculture farm in the Midwest somewhere that's losing money. Like it, it's something that people can, you know, have hope in. And that's, I mean, that's kind of the theme of the whole thing is there's hope there. So there's, it's attracting people to the industry. Um, so yeah, on the face of it, you know, those numbers are pretty positive. Um, I also think it's, I mean, it's great that they got that many respondents as well. And, um, you know, it's nice to see that personally, I got to say as like an operator of a farm, sometimes we fill in those surveys. Sometimes we can't be bothered because they tend to be about 300 questions long and they want to get really detailed information about your revenue and, you know, and, and so it takes like, you know, 30 minutes to fill out the survey. So, so we don't always, always even respond to that. So I think it's great that they've got that. Um, going on. And, and you know, I, I think there's there's also, of course, as you were saying, good news in that people are being able to make money uh, even this year by switching to things like CSAs, like selling directly to their consumers, all that kind of stuff. Of course, you know, we're going to see some consolidation in the future because you just it's just not possible to have thousands and thousands of small farms trying to sell to consumers, trying to get brand awareness, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it captures the mood. And I think that, you know, lastly, if you want to sort of 
equate that mood with investment as we've discussed previously you know investment in indoor farming in ag tech this year has been sort of off the charts again so um so yeah it just fits into that that same sort of narrative i think i i agree with a lot of a lot of what rob said i think that in addition to seeing young farmers it's really exciting to see that a lot of people are joining this industry without experience and i think that shows that the industry itself is really open-minded and willing to see you know it, you can be successful without having a lot of experience and it's it shows that you know you, you can have a passion for it and still be successful and i i'm really excited to to see the industry keep you know to keep growing and to inspire other people to be a part of this csa cea community yeah. Not CSA, CEA. <laughs> a lot of acronyms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other interesting data point uh, that came out was 28% of the founders last year were women. Um, and that compares to 13% back in 2019. Um, so, you know, having that diversity in there, I think, is, is really impressive, too. Um, you know, and it, it, ideally, those barriers to entry just keep coming down over time because, you know, the knowledge um, that we've gained and that we share with with many others, and 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 there are many others out there that are also sharing what they've learned uh, with new entrepreneurs and new farmers in the space. Um, I think is great. Um, the cost of uh, some of the equipment that we use is coming down pretty dramatically. I mean, year over year. Um, uh, the cost of, of lighting, for example, uh, in indoor farming and in vertical farming has, has also come down quite a bit. Um, so those barriers to entry are coming down. Um, and one of the other data points that they talk about was um, the diversity of funding sources that new farmers are, are coming at. So um, of the people that were surveyed, 36% Funding comes from friends and family, 35% from angel investors, 26% from government, local and, and uh, national governments, um, and then 20% from venture capitalists. So I, I think I know who raised all of that money. Um, <sighs> and then you've got 11% that were unsuccessful in funding, which is a very, very low percentage there. So I think that's that's interesting. Um, to in terms of you know a the diversity of sources I mean that's not you know friends and family and angels and, and government not that rare um, to see those in especially early stage companies uh, but you know roughly ten percent unable to raise the funding that they need um, I think is is a good sign um, yeah I mean that's super low if you if you I, I guess it depends on what that cohort really is like is it people who is it is this everybody who's tried like probably not right so but it but yeah it does seem to be positive i think like you know the real question for the us maybe over the next 10 years is how do you turn these funding sources into more like regular everyday funding sources so that it it isn't vc angel friends and family it's usda sba um whatever bank loans you know that you would want to raise money in a more traditional way for a, for a new business and i think as 
you know, as vertical farming technology, as this just gets a little bit more dependable as a business model, I think you'll hopefully get to the stage where people can, you know, start their businesses up that way. Um, and then, you know, through cash flow, be able to pay back those loans and, and, and have businesses that are actually viable businesses as opposed to startups that are burning through venture money. So that, I mean, that'll be a, a true mark of success. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's obviously a hugely, hugely attractive area for people to go into. And I, I would be, you know, curious to see also geographically, I think, you know, if you look back 2016, 2015, when Farm One was starting, you know, New York had a couple of folks doing stuff outside of that, really not much at all. Uh, but, you know, we're starting to see people in all cities like, you know, Dallas and Chicago and Memphis and da -da 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 -da, uh, like building farms. And that's that's amazing. And and I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll just continue that way. It will be smaller and smaller cities and, and more and more folks doing more and more viable projects, uh, which is which is great. Yeah, and to your point there with the business model, I think that's a really interesting area to look at. I mean, you know, I've been doing startups pretty much my entire career. And Poor you. the, I'm sorry. Poor you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they keep, it keeps pulling me back in. I tried the big company thing for a bit. It didn't work. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I think, you know, what's going to be really interesting is, when you're a startup, you're, you've got all the flexibility to try different things. Um, and, you know, what we learned was there seems to be legs with this direct-to-consumer model. It's been around for a while now. Was some would argue that it's fairly mature in, in, in some industries, like, um, you know, whether it's uh, uh, direct-to-consumer for apparel and, and some other things. But um, the idea that you can buy local from local farmers at this sort of scale, I think is very interesting. And of course, you know, the supermarkets aren't going to go away. Retail isn't going to go away. It may change a little bit um, as it should. Um, but the idea that you have, we've come back to this place where you can connect with your producer of food, whether that's you know, your, your, your farm like ours or, you know, whatever products that you have, I think are really interesting. Um, and I, I think that there's, what I'm really encouraged with is there's so many people that are coming into the space that hopefully there's going to be this, um, a lot of creativity and a lot of new ideas that are, that are, that are shared and that are spread. And it's kind of like, you know, we're in New York, our friends, urban producer are in Chicago. There's a great farm in the DC area called Little Wild Things. Um, and there's not a ton of direct competition yet um, because we're all local. We're producing for local markets and, and some other things. Um, and and um, so there's a lot of sharing within that community, a lot of sharing of ideas. There's a lot of learning from each other, what works and what doesn't. And I think that's a really great place to be in the industry right now, as opposed to we're all fighting for that Walmart account. We're all fighting for that Whole Foods account. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like the other thing that has happened, to be honest, to be a bit of a downer on the other side is like <laughs> we've definitely, you know, because at Farm Mom, we've been way more open about our farm than anyone in the who's raised more money or tried to do a more of a, a mass market kind of thing. And so, um, you know, we definitely had folks like a while back who would like come to a tour of ours and then we would see them like open a farm 
three months later where they like copy the chef jacket and then they copy like one or two things but they don't copy the real stuff you know so they're sort of um i mean that's inevitable i guess if you're just doing something right you know but there's there's sort of a bit of that but i think what actually plays out eventually and this is why these survey numbers are sort of interesting and maybe hopeful hopefully hopeful a, a lot of people opening you know these farms just fail it's just tough it's really really hard you know and i don't think it's really got much easier over the past few years i think some of the practices have become better known and maybe some of the grow ways of growing hydroponically have been more sort of um approachable people have been able to pick them up easier but i think the the logistics of starting like a new business or starting a new brand or, or something like that it's still really really tough and and so i certainly hope that people don't overestimate underestimate the difficulty of doing something like this whether you're selling directly to consumers or you're selling to restaurants or you're trying to do something else like um it's still a it's still a super tough business you know um and so so we'll see i don't i don't know if order grow or any of these other folks are really tracking the um, progress over time and how many how many farms last more than two years or something like that you know the normal sort of startup statistics that you want to you want to hit that's going to be interesting to to sort of understand as well i mean um <clears throat> you know certainly back in let's say 2017 2018 there were a couple of really high profile closures like farmed here in chicago closed down i know someone who actually bought a bunch of their old equipment at like a massive discount you know in the in the what do you call it the asset sale afterwards um so that was sort of like became synonymous with vertical farming right was this like failure you know um i definitely hope that switches around but i also i you know i i just think at the same time everyone has to be cautious right like opening these farms is is still a little bit risky and you know, certainly if people are raising money from friends and family or angels or VCs, I would definitely recommend they raise twice as much as they think they need, you know, because, uh, uh, because it's tough. It, it's, it's still tough, but yeah, like just a, just a note of caution there just to, you know, <laughs> take it to a balanced place, you know, business is still business. You still have yeah. to do the work, you know, um, yeah, 100%. Was an, this was an, just moving on, on the survey there. Um, what type of CEA facility do you use for cultivation? So this was interesting, 60%. So this was number one, indoor vertical farming. The second was greenhouse on ground. Um, the thing that I thought was interesting because we hear a lot about it was only 9% were shipping containers. So take out the respondent side of it, but I, I thought that was interesting. I, I thought the number of people that are doing the indoor vertical farm being as high as it was, as opposed to even greenhouses for urban farming was really interesting there. So you're sort of saying uh, 9%. So you're saying like one sixth of the vertical farms are shipping containers in a way or slightly less than one sixth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, in, in a way you could say that's a lot, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's, you know, certainly when whenever we've looked at shipping containers, shipping, I mean, shipping containers are super, super interesting things, you know, because on the one hand, they've obviously revolutionized the way logistics are handled around the world, like a complete, you know, uh, huge, huge thing. I can't remember the 
Uh, I think his name is Vaclav Simil. He's like a favorite author of Bill Gates. He writes a lot of books on these like very specific topics. He's he, there's a book on shipping containers. I think that he wrote um, that you know talks about how that completely changed how we ship things. I think personally, I think people tend to look at shipping containers in architecture and other parts of design and get overexcited about them because they underestimate the other things to do with buildings and, and et cetera, that are actually good innovations that we shouldn't lose. So, you know, people assume, oh, I could make a house out of shipping containers and that is going to be a really effective thing to do that's better than using traditional building materials. But what happens is, of course, you know, a house needs plumbing and it needs electricity, it needs insulation, it needs doors, it needs exits, it sometimes needs sprinklers, you know, etc. The more of this kind of stuff you add up, the more a builder will just look at you and say, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be using a shipping container. You should just be building a regular house, you know. And I, and so I, I think like my take on shipping containers and certainly having looked at the cost of the sort of retail options out there of shipping containers has when it comes to vertical farming, it's been, to be honest, it's been, well, I could build that myself for half the price, or I could just build like a regular prefab building uh, that actually has more to it. Like it has, you know, sites for plumbing, it has electricity, it has insulation, it has, you know, all this stuff for much less of the cost as well. So I, I mean, for me, the shipping container thing is still sort of a red herring. It's sort of like, okay, someone convinced someone else that shipping containers is this exciting thing to do with vertical farming. I think there's a few use cases where it's really interesting, like education, if you wanted to move this thing around to different sites. I think, sure, if you've got a site that's like ready to go, that's relatively hard to do construction in, if you wanted to fly something in, not fly something in, you know, ship something in that's sort of ready to go, I think that's sort of interesting. But yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that actually like one sixth of the respondents are using shipping containers. And I sort of think it's a marketing, it's a consequence of marketing rather than um, sort of necessity or suitability. But I might be a little bit outspoken on this. I'm just, you know, that's my, that's my sort of opinion. I don't know what you think, Michael, because you, you know, you've looked at this problem as well. And I, I don't know if you've got a, a different take, but that's my, that's my opinion. I mean, I'd imagine if you were starting out, if you were sort of getting into the industry, um, that's, you know, might be a, a, a I, I don't know if it's low cost necessarily, but um, it's not low cost. That's the problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. And maybe, you know, but the fact that it comes all ready to go to a degree, right, you still have to assemble it and all of that, you know, the, the time to market, maybe you've got you've got there, there's some advantage there. Um, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you're starting out, maybe it feels easier because everything is contained in a box and, and you know, it's it's a fairly easy size to manage. So maybe that's that's where some of this is coming from, particularly with uh, so many new people coming into the industry. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, what, just to just to react to that, I, I think like one of the things that, you know, Freight Farms, for instance, is a manufacturer of shipping container farms. You no, know, they if you look at their website and they've done this for years, they've made it look really simple. Like there's mm -hmm. a guy I can't remember the, the first video I watched. There was this guy who had headphones on and he had like a hoodie and he was like a cool kind of 20s kind of dude. And he had like an iPhone and he was just like 
I think he had like a pin code. Sorry, this is all just my <laughs> bad memory. But like he, he types in a pin, he opens the door. There's like music from the speakers in the ceiling. And he's like controlling this with his iPad, iPhone. And it just sort of, I don't know. It was like this vision. It was almost like you could control it just as you would your Sonos speaker or your whatever. It was like the same thing. And in reality, it's like not that, you know, because you look at those same systems at, at Square Roots and like, sure, they're very functional. They work pretty well, but they're not, you know, they're not an iPhone app, like uh, by any means. And they're very expensive. And at the same time, um, you know, the um, this idea of, I, I think they, they sort of portray the idea that you're getting everything in, in one. And it's kind of ready to go when it's like, no, the business model still needs to be established. Actually learning how to grow is like a whole other practice that is not solved by the equipment. And so I think it sort of made people just underestimate the difficulty of the business, frankly. And I, and I, I certainly have like read a few stories of people buying the shipping container, thinking they have a business model set up because they've looked at the spreadsheets and it kind of looks all right. And then I think, you know, three or four months in, they're like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is what it is. But I, I think there's something about the shipping container that is, it's always attractive to people. They, they like it because they can sort of fully understand the, the size of this thing, the shape of it, like how it looks. They've, everyone's seen a shipping container before. And then they go like, oh, okay. Like I don't, I, everything's sort of in this box. And I, in the same way that, you know, to be nice about it like you know that's what the original macintosh computer sort of did or was it apple at that stage i can't remember the, the original apple like the apple II or whatever that's what it kind of did it took this complicated funky tinkerer's thing and turned it into like a box and that was hugely attractive but it but it was attractive more as like a hobbyist kind of or a personal device rather than a, like a business tool you know um, that's my opinion. You can disagree with me by, you know, but <laughs> I, I think that what you're saying is that that's why it makes a great use case for education, because I don't think in those kinds of scenarios, you're really thinking about making it a profitable business, you know, right. the, the way that you're using the farm is completely different. And so that standardization and that simplification of the equipment and the concept of it is a lot easier for people to understand in education environments where that's what you want to communicate rather than trying to sell product and seeing how much money you can make out of a shipping container. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I, and I think that like there's the, you know, also anecdotally what I've heard from people, you know, some folks at a, a very large tech company who bought one of these um, who actually have just been overwhelmed by the maintenance requirements of this thing. You know, because they, they, you know, it's very easy to buy a shipping container farm. You almost need like two clicks and then you got it. But what happens is then you've got, you know, it's like bringing home a tiger or something. It's like, okay, well, now you got to feed the tiger. You know? And, and farms, you know, to speak sort of emotionally about our farm, farms are very sad places if they're not maintained. They're, they're very like, it's, it's sort of weird to talk about this, but like, if you walk into an indoor vertical farm and it isn't healthy, if the plants are sick, it is a horrible place to be. It's just, you're surrounded by problems, you know? 
And so buying a shipping container without someone there to maintain it is a, you know, that's a tough thing. And, and certainly we've seen, even with some folks that we've sort of collaborated with or worked with in New York City, like there's an appeal to buying a physical object that looks nice. And on day one, of course, you know, folks like us will set it up, plant it, beautiful, all the plants are great. And then, you know, if what people will often do is they'll sort of say, oh, we're going to get, you know, Julie over here to maintain this every couple of weeks. Um, and they'll, there's, because of the sort of uh, marketing in this industry and the, the idea of controlled environment agriculture and automated dosing systems, all that kind of stuff, the, the sort of sense that a lot of people has is, oh, Julie will only need to pop in and just tinker. She'll get on the iPhone every two weeks and just, you know, and it's, and if that happens, what happens is in three or four months time, this farm is dead. It's not growing anything. It's smelling bad. People are disappointed, all this kind of stuff. And, and uh, anyway, so my, <laughs> my, the, the rant that I'm going on is that people sort of underestimate that amount of work and they underestimate how bad it can be if a farm is not fully functional. Like, like the farm that's behind Ina there, uh, which is a Whole Foods unit, you know, we maintain that. Um, is it twice a week or is it three times a week? a week? Three times a week, right? Three times a three week. Three times a week. We literally, and it's not like everyone, it's not like we're ripping plants out three times a week. We're doing little things and we're like adjusting, but that's a serious amount of maintenance for a system that is um, what, like roughly a hundred, hundred square feet in grow area or something like yeah. that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just, again, it comes back to one of the complaints I have about this industry in general is that it, it people overplay the benefits or the ease, um, and then it causes consequences down the line because people then get themselves into situations where they've got farms that are like producing and they're not selling it, or they get farms where the plants are not healthy and they don't know how to maintain them. And, um, and, and yeah, like we hope, I guess, I guess the positive message would be, let's make sure that 2021 has less of that and more of the like real real hopeful growing what do you yeah. think michael am i being too well, down am i being too like negative about this <laughs> well i was i was just about to tell you about the shipping container i bought for us um <laughs> oh. so a, a couple of things i mean one i think you need some of that failure right you yeah. need a little bit of the yeah. shakeout to happen you know this happens you see it time and again in the tech industry since the dot-com days, you know, we go through these cycles and, you know, there's always a gold rush, right? Everybody rushes into it. They think it's something it, it, very rarely I find with startups, um, you know, what you end up with is what you began with, uh, Never. just because that's yeah. just the nature of, of doing this type of work. Um, yeah. So, you know, some of it needs to shake out and yeah, maybe there's a place for certain uh, types of farmers, certain businesses um, where a shipping container makes sense. but you know, even on the reusable side of it, um, there's an incredible number of uh, uh, distressed real estate assets that you could reuse and repurpose. Uh, we've talked about abandoned and unused malls uh, all around the country, you know, let alone in, in cities where you can, you, you can grow uh, in tucked away places. Um, I would love to see those. I don't know if you guys had these temporary school classrooms in the playground we we always had these at the schools that i went to I, I guess it's common across australia and the uk at least maybe even belgium 
and you'd have a temporary classroom that's supposed to be there for like six months and then seven years later you're still going to classes in there so <laughs> maybe those are yeah. good for vertical farms maybe not but like i'd love to see places like that converted yeah yeah well so this next question is about technology and you know to your point running running the business and running the farm and and just leaving things alone what types of technology were used in the operation so no surprise 80 percent in artificial lighting no duh um but i did think this was interesting um so 53 percent used environmental sensors and controllers 16 percent used automated equipment for seeding harvesting or packaging um, so we've talked a lot about that in the last couple of months with Justin and, and Jess and, you know, what solutions um, are out there and, and what we would need uh, as we scale the business. Um, but this last one was really interesting, too. Only 5% use robots. Um, so, you know, is it a question of we're not there with the robots and the AIs or is it just not you know uh, something that that's going to be a big part of uh what vertical farming or what cea is about how was that question phrased did they say just do you use robots or uh well the question was what type of technology is used in your operation i don't know if that was the question um but mm. i'm guessing that mm. they made they gave a few options and maybe it was a rank or a selection there i'm I, personally i have a real issue with the word robot by the way because like i I think the moment something has an articulating arm, people call it a robot arm, right? But if that arm was moving uh, in a single dimension, single axis, you know, then it wouldn't be a robot anymore. It would just be a piece of automation, right? And then, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, or a harvester that is just continuously flowing. People wouldn't call that a robot. But then the moment that something is like picking or grabbing, or if it was doing something that had a human-like motion to it, it would then become a robot, right? And and then related to that, people tend to, of course, anthropomorphize. So they say something that has an articulating limb to it, they attribute more intelligence to that device than like a supercomputer that has just, uh, you know, an LED light that goes on and off, right? And, and do you get do you get what I'm saying, Michael? It's sort of like people tend to equate AI with robots that's different to traditional automation. Um, and I and the reason why I think that's important in vertical farming, particularly, is that some of the um, automation problems or challenges that people want to overcome um, around harvesting, for instance, are this real mixture of very difficult AI problems. And also very difficult mechanical engineering, um, mechanical motion problems as well, and even um, surfaces and material choice problems. You know, so for instance, if you take uh, flower harvesting, right? If you take the flowers to my left here, these beautiful uh, marigolds, got some yarrow, uh, purple oxalis. Um, if you wanted to go and harvest this marigold flower. To identify the flower, of course, is a machine vision problem, but it's completely separate to this mechanical motion problem of how to actually pick the flower without damaging the flower. And then there's a problem about what material that device should be. Um, and then, of course, there's a, a problem about moving down the aisles, etc. But that's sort of like a solved, you know, uh, robotics problem, I guess. 
um, in the, if you go to you know, a modern Amazon warehouse, there will be a machine that's capable of moving down aisles with no problem whatsoever and finding efficient routes and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that sort of is, is very much like in play right now is like, okay, how do you identify flour? How do you cut flour without damaging flour? Um, in a indoor environment, of course, that's easier because you can control lighting in a way that you can't outdoors where it could be sun, shine, shadow, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess what I'm sort of getting at is that you know, there may, we may make faster progress at one part of that problem than another. Um, and But what we are all experiencing, I think, in smaller scale indoor agriculture is that a lot of this sort of automation that goes on in larger scale agriculture kind of only makes sense at that scale. And the problems that we encounter in smaller scale vertical farms tend to be the problems where actually like advanced motion robotics and those articulating arms and things that can um, kind of do things on like a smaller scale, but still be efficient. Those are the kinds of things that are actually going to help small scale farmers like radically. But those are sort of, in a way, some of the hardest bits of that tech, you know, because to have, um, for instance, to, to seed, to plant seeds in small batch sizes, like two or three trays, you know, it's not something that like a traditional uh, seeding machine does very well because the switching cost of setting up the next batch is so high that you might as well just do the whole thing by hand. Whereas like a robotic pick place arm kind of thing would be actually really, really great, you know, but the, then currently the expense of most of those systems is in the 10 to $100,000 kind of range. And so then does that make sense for the small farm? You know, I don't know. So I guess... What's my conclusion to that? My conclusion to that is the word robotics is just opens up this whole sort of can of worms of like, okay, what do you actually mean? And I think that um, it's it's a really sort of fertile area for new startups in this industry. And then for those companies to fully understand the problems in vertical farming, I think is going to open up much, much more challenging so, sort of solutions, you know, than what we have on the market right now. Um, and that we just call like robotics uh, as one word. That's the end yeah, of my that's, speech. That's a good distinction to made, uh, make. I, I watched the latest Boston Dynamics uh, end of the world apocalypse robot video yeah. over the weekend. Oh, what and, do they got now? Uh, they did. They had a whole bunch of robots dancing, which um, okay. seems like, you know, if, if you were to create a bunch of robots that, that could destroy humanity, um, this is the video you would make right before that because you want everyone's guard to come down. And I mean, you want to movies. keep the robots happy so that you are on their side so that they don't punish you. Yeah, yeah. You just think of them as these funny characters that dance to you know, music and, and, and are joyful and all of that. But I think yeah. we all saw on Terminator that that's not true. Um, <laughs> but that... <laughs> That's an interesting distinction that the automation versus the robots. I mean, for for us, you know, we've been looking at solutions for harvesting at scale um, and some of the challenges and some of the products on the market right now, you know, everything from um, uh, uh, getting the right height for the blade, um, you know, getting the right processes down. And, you know, it's one thing to do it for a few hundred customers. Um, but it's a totally different thing once you're in the thousands, right? Yeah. Um, uh, if you don't have some form of automation, 
um, to that. And, and maybe it's just dumb automation versus, you know, some AI coupled um, sentient being that can figure out you know, which <laughs> flower is ready to cut. And, yeah, and general it. intelligence, I think, is not required, right? And, yeah. and, and also, like, you know, again, I, I, I still also think people tend to fetishize automation in some contexts where it still won't make financial sense, right? Like if, if you're a smallish farm and the machine would be amazing, but it costs uh, $300,000, <laughs> but your labor costs over the next four years are going to be less than $300,000. Like, okay, does that make any sense whatsoever to buy that machine, you know, et cetera. And I, anyway, I, I, I always think this stuff needs to be put in that context, in that operational context. And I think there will be small-ish vertical farms that don't actually require, you know, that much automation <laughs> for some of the processes that they have because uh, of the nature of what they're growing. Um, mm -hmm. And everyone starting out should be somewhat conscious of that. But I, I'm super excited to see what new technology comes up because I think, you know, on a positive note, some of these problems are not that hard to solve. It's more just the fact that the problem has not been pressing in the past, and that's why there isn't a solution to it. But some of these planting seeds, some of the harvesting problems, some of the transplanting problems, they're not, you know, they're not unsolvable. There's nothing, you know, in other industries that hasn't been solved that's more difficult. You know, sorting potato chips and making sure you get rid of the green ones like that's a quite hard problem but that is effectively solved in the potato chip industry um i do eat potato chips sometimes it's one of my weaknesses you know so 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 vertical farming there's good things to come i think because now more and more people are looking at these issues yeah pringles pringles for life okay are your pringles um, going okay is that because of is that because of gaming and and not getting too dirty on your a lot of gamers like Pringles because they don't produce a lot of um, crumbs and stuff. Did you ah, know about is that? Is that it? Well, I just think Pringles are delicious, and it's the only <laughs> thing to eat when you're on the plane because the high salt content. And it's fantastic. Very convenient. Great nutritional advice there, Michael. Thank you yeah, so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, uh, on to the next point on the survey. Um, only 4% of farms grew root starch vegetables, uh, potatoes, yams, sweet potatoes, and the like. Uh, I'll give you a guess. potatoes in an indoor farm? Somebody who bought a shipping container and realized <laughs> they made a mistake. No, sorry. Wait, what were you going to say? You were going to make us guess who's growing that? or No, it's going to make you guess what the highest percentage of, uh, or what, what type of produce was the highest, represented the highest percentage in CEA. What's leafy greens? Do I, do we have to go tighter than salad that? greens? Sixty eight percent did salad greens, um, and fifty three percent did herbs. Uh, that was so between fifty and sixty eight percent were the highest. Below that, the next highest was twenty five percent with vine vegetables, with uh, tomatoes, cucumbers, and peppers. Um, which I'd imagine we'll see that increase too, right? I mean, that's uh, seems to be a fairly commonly cultivated crop in CEA. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, obviously in greenhouses, you know, growing cucumbers and peppers and tomatoes is nothing new. But I, I, I feel like you know, there's some graph somewhere where, um, like chili peppers or gourmet chili peppers are going to make sense in a vertical farm, and I'm not sure. The, the lines are aligned as mm. they need to be right now. But if you go to like sort of, 
you know, these people doing experimental varieties of chili peppers, you know, the Carolina, Carolina Reaper type folks. I would have thought <laughs> that you're going to get a similar effect as you would with cannabis where you can get a better consistent output oh my with goodness. high intensity lighting. Oh my God. Um, and as long as you can get- Oh my get God, that was like very beginning of quarantine. For that I remember product, that. It's going to be worth it, but I'm not, I'm not familiar yes. enough with the economics to know for sure, but I, I think there's Oh my God, tragic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the other interesting okay. one is um, 7% with melons. Um, and I'm guessing that's, that's all greenhouse and, and outdoor. Be. And then- 14% with berries to raspberries, blueberries, and strawberries. Yeah. Yeah. I would have thought that's greenhouse. I mean, obviously a few folks like plenty apparently, uh, and mm. Ushberry are doing strawberries, but I don't think there's a lot of folks with, uh, lower amounts of funding who are attacking those yet, you know, in, in vertical farms. Yeah. 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 Substrates grow media. Um, this was also kind of interesting. So another topic for the farmers out there that are listening to this, that we talk about a lot and uh, both in terms of performance, but also cost. So coming in, uh, which is the highest used or the most used at 28% cococoa and then 18% rock wool. Um, so it seems like this is one of those topics that uh, a lot of farmers have a lot of opinions about. Um, Rob, what's what's been Farm One's experience with this? Okay, Michael, sorry, just do that last bit again, where you what you were you were, you just asked me a question about the cocoa choir. I think what was it? Yeah. So what what's been our experience? No, no, no. Do a space. You got to do a space before you talk. Do the what, sir? No, you got to leave a, a space in the audio oh, okay. before you. Yeah. Okay, so the next question uh, is, is one that's probably pretty hotly debated amongst uh, farmers. Uh, choice of commonly used substrate. Uh, so coming in in first place, Cococoa at 28%. And then in second place, the uh, love it or hate it rock wool at 18%. Um, what's been the experience at Farm One, Rob? Oh, boy. Well... Where to start? I think, you know, you start out, I guess, wanting to, um, well, it, I mean, it depends who you are. Like we certainly started out with a sustainability um, goal in mind, but also we were trying to make sure we could grow different things and make sure they grow uh, effectively. We wanted something that was relatively easy, uh, inexpensive, right? Um, and then, you know, there's things about how well does it perform in the system? Like, does it break down? Does it cause a bunch of, you know, problems in your hydroponic system? Um, and then in addition, what you get to when you reach a certain scale is that the logistics or the, the supplier, you know, their consistency, like that's an issue as well, right? If you have a great product, but it's inconsistent, um, then you can't really use it anymore. We had a product that we were using for quite a while, which was very cheap, pretty uh, environmentally friendly, um, pretty easy to use, pretty good yields. But half the time when we would get it, well, it would come late or it would come frozen on a pallet, like literally frozen, you know? So our team had to like chip away at this stuff to get it, you know, 
to be usable and there's just not it's just not viable so i think what people end up is with these products that are pretty commonly used you know coco is like commonly used rock wool is obviously abundant in the industry and then you have others like biostrate and you know some other things like jute um but yeah it's i i would say no one's really cracked it yet with like the new materials we've got there's some nice stuff for instance we called uh called veg bed which we use sometimes uh we don't use it for everything i think there's you know i think there's still a, a place in the market for people to develop a few new materials especially materials that are biodegradable compostable um light you know re relatively cheap um yeah there's space in the market someone should keep working on this i think mm-hmm um, okay, so this last section is about revenue and profitability. So back to the point earlier about the business and, and, and all that, uh, the percent of farms reporting profitability versus year, years in business. So zero to one, 43% uh, reporting profitability, two to four, 51%, um, and then five to nine, 63%. Um, so, you know, hold on to five to nine years and, and, you know, your, your odds of becoming profitable are, are, uh, do increase, but you know, that that's, that's an interesting timeline in 43% zero to one. Um, you know, of course they, they don't really talk about scale here of, of the farm, but, um, that's promising. I mean, the fact that, that, you know, you've got almost half that are reporting that they're, they're profitable. Uh, within that's, the first year. Yeah, I mean, that's great if it's true. I, I think people are probably under-reporting founder salaries there and mm. uh, and or farmer salaries. I think they're probably under-reporting. So I don't know. I think it's good. I don't necessarily believe it. Like, I just I, I think there's some folks working overtime and not counting their own hours um, as paid labor for that. Just Just, you know, in terms of people starting a farm year one, to be profitable um i don't know it's tough i hope people are doing it that's amazing well done good job yeah Go maybe it. this next point sort of an indicator that average farm revenue of greenhouses 133,000 um and vertical farms 131,000 um almost 132,000 so yeah we're talking about very small scale farms here i think yeah like, how can you pay yourself a salary if you make 130,000 and then you're paying yourself a salary and then you're paying for your consumables and your lights? I don't know. It doesn't add up to me, really. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, not to say that everyone in farming should be making like a six figure salary or something, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's tough to make those economics work, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would have a suspicion that people aren't starting a career in this industry to make a six-figure salary. I think they, right, they, they would assume that, I would assume that they would know going in that they would probably not be making a lot, of, a, a lot, a big chunk of change. Yeah, no, but I, I absolutely. And that's why, I, but I, I think people, when they come across a survey like this, I think, this is my opinion, I don't know, but I, I do know, you know, I, I certainly know people personally who've sort of, you know, fallen into this trap. My, my cousin back in the 90s was like a hairdresser and, you know, she thought she was making all this money, but then, it, you know, she realized she just wasn't paying herself. And, it, and I think this is like a classic small business thing to do. 
Um, not to say that just because I've had this one anecdote about my cousin that I apply it to all small businesses, but I, I, you know, I've sort of even been in this situation myself where it's like, okay, the company is sort of making money. We're sort of profitable, but like maybe I haven't taken a salary, you know, at that time or something like that. So I think it's a, I, I think it's probably indicative of, again, one of the problems of marketing in this industry of like, okay, this is easy. You grow a lettuce for $2, you sell it for $5. Oh, you're profitable. It's like, okay, maybe you're not. So, so we'll see. I want to dig into the numbers. They, they should have to share their tax returns, you know, just like Trump, <laughs> but that's probably a different survey, I think. Yeah. Um, the, the other point that was interesting, too, is average farm size and, and revenue per square meter. So this mm. revenue per square meter was interesting. So for greenhouses, it was $18 a square meter. Um, per vertical per month or yeah? Uh, it doesn't say. Um, it's probably per year then, I guess. Maybe it's per year. Yeah. Well, that's absurdly low if it's per year. Jeez. And with vertical farms, that's $116. Per meter per... That should still be per month, though, shouldn't it? I mean, uh, sorry, In the write-up, it doesn't like, say. Know, yeah. I just, yeah. you know, from whenever we do our math, like, we we got to be in, you know, double digits per month per square foot. Otherwise, like, we're not interested, I would say. Um, yeah, I wonder what the numbers really are there. That'd be curious. I'm always, you know, and I think th this data exists somewhere, but, you know, if you compare cannabis farms to vertical farms to greenhouse to outdoor, like what is the, you know, target revenue per square foot or something per month? And obviously with cannabis, you're getting up in the hundreds of dollars per square foot per month kind of thing. Um, but yeah, in vertical farming, you still want to be up there. So yeah, really curious about that number. I wonder how that played I out. I think it's per year. So all of the revenue numbers in this report are, are per year. So that's $120. I don't know. It doesn't add up to me. So it's yeah. 130K a year. You're profitable, but you're only doing $18, $118 per square foot per year. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Well, maybe. So I think the takeaway here that's interesting is the the very large difference between vertical farming and greenhouse farming. So is that the nature of the crops that you're growing in greenhouse versus vertical farm typically? Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, you just, yeah, it's, there's, it's like apples and oranges and how long is yeah. a piece of string kind of thing. But I, you know, definitely in a vertical farm, you're just forced to be growing higher value crops. Like it just has, you just have to you know, and yeah. otherwise the whole thing just doesn't work. So I think it's a consequence of that. Um, yeah, I guess. Yeah, food for thought. Don't know yeah, what I mean, else to say. It's all speculation now, you know. So. <laughs> you throw in a wishy berry and, and it, it, it completely throws off that, that, <laughs> that equation. Yeah, but it also suggests that there's a bunch of folks in vertical farms who are selling for much less than $118 mm. per square foot per year, which is a troublesome situation. Like it's, uh, I mean, maybe, yeah, if your salary is $2 an hour or something, then sure, then you can be profitable. Well, you just bought pay. a shipping container you can live in, so. <laughs> yeah, there we go. That's what you do with the shipping container. Uh, we figured <laughs> it out. We figured it out. So Amazing. that wraps up uh, that article. So we'll have the link to the to the story in the usual places. It's really interesting. Either way, it's really interesting. 
to Ina's point, when we kick this off, um, it seems like we're a really optimistic place in the industry. Um, there's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of uh, good work that needs to be done to improve the food system um, all around. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about the level of interest from entrepreneurs and, and, and all of that that comes into it. Because at the end of the day, that's how you get progress, I think, in industries. You know, people that are creative, uh, that are willing to take a few risks, um, put their ideas on the line and, and kind of see if they've got it, you know, and, and that's how we push the industry forward. So, Absolutely. I agree. We need crazy people who want to do big things. And that's, <laughs> that's how we do it. Fantastic. That was good. Um, why don't you uh, read us out, Ina? Amazing. Well, thank you both so much for um, speaking on today's podcast. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. And we look forward to a great year with all of you. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. And if you're interested in becoming a Farm One member, the link is below in the description. Yeah, Farm One members also get exclusive content soon as well. Sorry to cut you off, but I had to say it. So, you know, if Absolutely. you're a member of Farm One, you're going to get access to some behind the scenes stuff, some interesting interviews, all that kind of thing. So check it out if you haven't already. Uh, you get weekly greens delivered to your door, fresh, uh, harvested and delivered same day. We're also adding new stuff soon. So stay tuned. I'm excited about that uh, as well. Over to Ina again. I'm sorry. We'll see you all next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>